What's up? How's it going? Uh, this is the time of like our large group Wednesday night meeting where we, we get together and uh, we open up the Bible and we talk about it. We learn about it. We figure out what it means for us. And uh, we've been in the book of James all year. Um, and that's where we find ourselves tonight. The book of James chapter four as Grant just read. Um, and tonight there's a lot in there and we're not gonna get to like every little piece of detail in that text tonight, but uh, we're, gonna hit, we're gonna hit the ground running. So I just wanna... Uh, um, I just want to recap real quick what we talked about last week. If you guys remember, we talked about wisdom, right? Like we talked about knowing things is like we can understand things, we can know things, we can learn things. But wisdom is taking what we know and applying it so that we can produce something good, so we can produce something uh, helpful. Um, and so wisdom is applying truth, right? And so last week we talked about wisdom. Um, and we spent, uh, it was kind of a, a different topic than we've been talking about in James because he was, he spent a lot of time talking about practical things like, like taming our tongue, um, like how we talk, like the, how, how our speech has power. Um, he talked about comparing, uh, well, he talked about giving, giving our time and self-sacrificing for those in need, right? He talked about uh, oppression and we talked about uh, like favoritism, oppression and partiality and how that's not what God designed, how God designed humans to interact. And so we talked a lot about all these practical things happening. Um, but last week we kind of took this kind of esoteric step back and talked about something called, like wisdom. And so something a little bit more abstract, something a little bit more out there. Um, and so tonight we're gonna, what James is gonna do, he's gonna take that idea of wisdom, something a little bit more esoteric and he's gonna marry it to something pretty practical for us. And what we're going to be talking about tonight is conflict. We're going to be talking about interpersonal relational conflicts, so fights and quarrels. And as, as Grant read, we're going to be talking about how people get in conflicts with each other. And our big theme tonight, like the big like thesis statement for what we're going to be talking about is this. Conflict with other people is actually rooted in our own personal conflict with God. Conflict with other people is actually rooted in our own personal conflict with God. Uh, so what I want to do is I just want to pray again real quick, and then we're just going to get rolling. We're going to hit the ground running here. So uh, let me pray real quick. Lord, Father, thank you so much for another night, man. Another, I mean, it stopped snowing. Oh, no, it didn't. Thank you for the snow, I guess. Um, man, I, I'm just really grateful that we get to meet together on a, on a college campus and uh, like sing songs of worship, um, open our hearts to each other and to you, uh, open our minds to your truth. And Lord, I just pray that as we do this, that it would, it would have a lasting change in our life, Lord. Um, and that as we consider our relationship to you, uh, it would shape our relationships to each other, Lord. And so, Father, I pray as we dive into the idea of conflict, uh, you'd just help us understand you better. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. All right, so uh, our, all conflict with each other is rooted really in our, in our personal conflict with the Lord. And we're gonna, we're gonna open up, we're gonna have four kind of like points tonight, but each of them, we're going to have two little sections, but with four points. And so our first point tonight, it, it, James gets into, is our conflict with other people. And so we see that in James 4, um, verses 1 through 3. And so we read that real quick together. Uh, so James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so first what we see here is just how we, like we live in conflict with other people. Uh, and this is James taking the idea of wisdom and he's gonna marry it, like, like I said, to something far more practical for us. And that's just our relationships with people. Um, and so what he's gonna do is gonna, gonna dissect 
our fights with people and like our, our, our fight with our roommate over who does the dishes, right? Like we all have these, your fight with your parents the last time you talked on the phone. You know what I mean? Like we all have these conflicts in our life and in our relationships and James is gonna dissect that. Um, and so his first statement is what? What causes quarrels and fights among you? And then how does he answer it? He says, are not your passions at war within you? Here's the thing about uh, like conflicts. So there's like two kinds of people, right? There's the like external, like, like I show my emotion, right? It's the person that when they get angry and when they get in fights, you, you, know, they're, you know they're mad, right? It's, so I, I was a terrible roommate. I think I told you guys this before. I was a really bad roommate. Um, and I had this other roommate. His name was Neil. Um, he's one of my best friends through high school and in college. But uh, the dude would let you know when he was angry. And I gave him plenty of reasons to be angry as a roommate. Um, whether it was like leaving my laundry in the dryer for like a day or two or five. Uh, you know when Neil's mad. He's like, yeah, you know when Neil's mad. So the, the, the two kinds of people, one that like, they get angry, they get frustrated, and you know that they're pissed at you, right? But then on the other side of that spectrum, you have that person that takes all of that frustration and rage and like bottles it up and turns it into themselves and seeds and, you know, passive aggressive. I don't want to go to Sweet Peaks with you. You know what I mean? Like that kind of person that just bottles it up. Um, and so for whatever reason, you have these two kind of people. And really, we all fall somewhere along there, right? Like sometimes, like it's rare to find someone that's totally ex- external in their expression of their, of, of their conflict, and it's rare to find someone that's totally internal. But the idea, idea is that we all experience fights, we all experience conflict in our life with other people, and we all experience it in a different way. Um, and so James, what he does here is he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? We all experience conflict, and James is going to dissect the reason for that conflict. Um, and so he says, where our conflict comes from, look at verse 1 and 2 again, the first part of verse 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. James is basing the foundation of any kind of like interpersonal relational struggle we have, he's basing it in here, like in our hearts, like in our minds, in us as people. James is saying that all of our, our rage and our struggle with other people, when we have fights with people, anyone, that it starts here with us in our hearts. And really what this is, we're gonna just take a, take a, second, a second and talk a little theology, okay? Uh, this is James acknowledging this theological term we use called depravity or original sin. The idea being that uh, all over the Bible, God talks about how we are not born good. Like we're not born as these innately beautiful little creatures that could do no wrong. I have a little baby, right? Like I have a little baby, Harper May. She's nine months old and she's the, like, honestly, I'm not, I'm not just saying this as a dad, but she's literally the cutest thing you've ever seen. Am I not wrong? That's right. She's literally the cutest thing I've ever seen. But I can already tell, like she's already like manifesting some things that are like, Man, that's not cool. Uh, when we feed her, like when we, so when, I, when we're, we've been trying to feed her like real human food, you know what I mean? Like not just that like ground up, mushy, nasty, gross stuff, but like real food. And so we had mustard seed the other night and I was eating my general chicken and I was all happy, right? But she wanted some. And so I started feeding her a little bit, right? So I give her a tiny little bite. And as soon as I take it away and start to feed myself, she starts throwing a tantrum. She starts waving like, flappy bird and freaking out. And like, I need my food. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so I can't even eat now because she's this little creature just demands that I feed her. And so I can already see in this nine month old, beautiful little baby girl that I love with all my heart, I can already see impatience and I can already see this like, feed me. You know what I mean? She is a porker too. So that adds a little bit to it, but um, 
She's an adorable porker. I mean that in the most loving possible way. Anyways, the point is, is as James says here, all of our conflicts with each other, it starts in here and in our hearts, right? Our natural state is rebellion. Our natural state is to reject God and look for satisfaction and joy and help inside of ourselves. It's what Aristotle would call a bent towards vice, not a bent towards virtue. We are bent towards vice. We are bent towards rebellion against God. Um, there's this phrase that we use a lot, I think. Um, like, I use it a lot too. It's, it's just, I feel. I feel like. I feel like, you know, that person should have treated me, but I feel like I should have got a better grade on that exam. I felt like he should have passed me the ball for that last second three-pointer. Like we, we always have this, this, we say this phrase over and over and over again. I feel like, I mean, they really should pass me the ball for that last second three-pointer, you know what I mean? But we always say this phrase, I feel like. And that's, James is saying, yeah, sure, you feel like. I bet you feel that way. We all have this natural innate feeling, this natural innate desire, this natural innate passion. But James is saying, and much of the Bible says that that natural born desire is broken a little bit. It's bent not towards God, but towards ourselves. And so what what he's exposing here in our conflict is that all of our conflict with each other is actually built upon that natural innate desire that's bent towards ourselves. Uh, Any fight you have with your boyfriend, any fight you have with your parents, any fight you have with your roommate, whether you internalize it or externalize it, It's built upon your own desires coming up against somebody else's desires. And so it's not like we live in this vacuumous space, right? It's like I'm living my own autonomous life and there's no externalities affecting me. Like we all have, like everyone in this room is affecting everyone else in this room in some way, right? And so it's not just that I am bent and broken, but that each and every one of us is bent and broken in our natural state. And when my desire, when my passion rubs up against yours, that's where that conflict happens, right? Does that make sense? And so James is just exposing that, that what begins and what starts those, those con- that conflict between people is that innate brokenness that all, resides in all of us. But James exposes that idea even further in verses two and three. So let's read, read verses two and three real quick. Um, he says this, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I, I imagine that right about now, uh, like, I know I did this when I, when I was reading this text. Uh, I imagine right about now, some of you were trying to justify the last fight you had with somebody. You know what I mean? Like, like, like that person really, that, my roommate totally jacked my curling iron and didn't tell me. What a jerk. Like, I imagine a lot of us in here are trying to justify the last fight we had, right? Here's the thing, James isn't trivializing our fights, right? This isn't, this isn't some like religious like namaste, peace, right? Quit harshing my mellow, dude. No, this is like, James isn't trivializing our conflict with people, right? He's taking it real seriously. Look at the language he used. He says war. He says murder. He says fight, covet. He uses these heavy, heavy words to describe our relational conflict with each other. He's taking it very seriously and because of that, He isn't interested in parsing out who and who isn't justified in any particular fight or argument. Neil, my roommate, had plenty of reasons, plenty of justifiable reasons to hate me as a roommate. I cannot overstate how bad of a roommate I was. 
But instead of parsing out why you're justified in your last fight or your last, last conflict, what if you assessed why that conflict exists in the first place? See, often what James is exposing in these two verses here is that our external rage and our in, internal explosion or internal implosions of, of, of um, conflict are born out of our own insecurities, our own lack of something. It could be material, material insecurities, like we don't have something we need, money, car, uh, or a, a person, like a friend, or boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, it can be a positional insecurity, like a job or a grade or something like that. Emotional insecurities, spiritual insecurities. James is getting after the fact that you covet and you do not have. You covet, so you murder. Or you do not have, so you covet. You do not have, so you murder. You ask and you do not get because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The idea being that we're missing something, right? James is acknowledging this, this, this deep philosophical and spiritual reality that we're all missing something. And so like, let's give us an example real quick, like stupid example. Uh, I, I had a, I've had a lot of jobs. Like I grew up working with my dad and like doing carpentry and stuff, which I will never do again. You know what I mean? Like I worked with my dad and that was plenty. Uh, <laughs> I worked retail. I did a lot of jobs and I've had a lot of different bosses, some good ones and some bad ones. But if you've ever had a job and you've been told for like the 8,000th time to go clean the bleeping restroom, <laughs> how frustrating is that, right? Like you're the guy that always has to clean the restroom. And as I was thinking about this and I was thinking about how I was like, um, I was a pretty terrible employee too, if we're being honest. I wasn't a Christian for a long time. So bad roommate, bad employee, like all that stuff. I mean, it makes, makes sense. Anyways, my, getting back to my point, uh, when we're told to do something by a boss or an authority figure, whether it's a parent, a boss, a teacher, we don't like being told what to do. It's kind of baked into who we are as millennials and Gen Zers or whatever, right? Is that what we are? Or y'all are? No? Yeah? Something like that. It's like baked into who we, we don't like authority, man. We don't like being told what to do. We like freedom, right? We like autonomy. And so like the reason that you get so pissed when your boss says, go clean the bathroom for the 800th time, it's because you just don't like being told what to do. Plus, clean the bathroom sucks, right? But really what we're missing is we, we want that authority. We want that autonomy. We want that freedom. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want someone to dictate our every move while we're working. See, the common thread throughout all these verses is that the grounding in conflict is in us, in our nature, and it's also in our lack of something. It's in our insecurity. It's in us wanting and needing and impassionately desiring something we don't have. And so what James is doing, he's acknowledging our shared human frailty here. He's, he's saying it's reasonable that we fight with each other because we're busted up, we're broken people, and we are missing something. And so in the same way that we talked last week, right, about wisdom from God and wisdom from below, or wisdom from above and wisdom from below, wisdom from God and wisdom from ourselves, right? Um, wisdom from man is false, it's weak, it's lacking the tools needed to, uh, to supply a fulfilled life. And desire and passion and selfishness, they, they, they lack the tools needed to supply a fulfilled life. And so we fight and we have conflict with people. And it's actually this really vicious cycle. Did something, did I do that? Was that me? Y'all know? That was Garrett. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's up? I saw y'all smiling, so I was wondering if it was me. Uh, um, it's actually this really vicious cycle that James exposes here. It's like, um, it's like you're fighting and quarreling because 
you can't satisfy these base desires you have. And because you can't satisfy these base desires you have, you fight and you quarrel. And it's just this thing that happens over and over and over again inside of our soul. And then let alone the fact that, again, how many people, there's like 30 people in this room, right? And so it's not just that I am in this internal space of, of frustration, but then all of us are coming into conflict with each other in these vortexes of, of fighting and interpersonal conflict. That was a lot of spit. <laughs> the point is, is that it's this nasty little cycle. It's not a contained ecosystem. We're all in this together. And so this is where we see the premise of our text tonight in that main thesis statement, um, is that our conflict with each other is action, our conflict with each other, while a product of our brokenness and our, and, our, and our envy and our selfishness and our jealousy, it really finds its root in what was broken in the first place. In other words, our conflict with each other is built upon our conflict with God for each of us. And so that's our second point tonight, conflict with God. Our conflict with others is built upon our conflict with God. And we see that in James 4, verses 4 through 10. <clears throat> so this is kind of a shift here, right? You adulterous people. That escalated quickly, yeah? <laughs> so you adulterous people. Uh, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is, no, it is to no purpose that the scripture says... He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Excuse me. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so as James exposed our conflict with each other, he takes it even further than just us. Just me? He takes it further than just me to, to our inner relationships with each other and how we're all fighting our desires against one another. But he zooms out even a little bit more so we even get a bigger picture of where our conflict actually begins beyond our immediate circumstances. James says what's actually going on inside of our conflicts with other people is that we are in a, in a deeper reality a grander, more intense conflict with God. We are at war with others because we are at war with God. What's the first thing that follows James exposing our conflict? You adulterous people, do you not, uh, let me, how about I read it instead of trying to do it off the top of my brain. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The first thing he alludes to after he's talking about this conflict we have with each other is our conflict with God. And so to explain this, I think we need to understand something um, that James has been doing throughout this book. Uh, throughout this letter, James has been taking two things, two different like dichotomies, two ways of thinking. One what is worldly and one what is godly. And over and over and over again, as we've talked about wisdom, as we've talked about justice, as, we talked, have, as we've talked about religion and service, James has constantly put up side by side what is godly and what is worldly. For example, the world, worldly wisdom is self-seeking and prideful as we saw last week, but God's wisdom is humble. Worldly religion is self-exalting, whereas godly religion is self-sacrificing. The world exalts and favors the favorable, and the gospel exalts the lowly and humbles the haughty. 
So over and over and over again, he holds these two in contrast. And so what James is after in our context tonight is in many ways a culmination of that idea and that there are two kind of ways to live life. Let's read Proverbs 16, 25 real quick. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 14, 12 says the exact same thing. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end leads to death. There is a way that seems right to us, and then there is a way, or there is a way that is right to God. Over and over and over again, James is exposing that reality to us. What seems right to us, what makes sense to us, is not necessarily what is right according to God. That's the distinction between worldly and godly. It's not this like, man, you hear, like sometimes you read these verses about like worldly and sin, like, and, and you get these like evoked images of uh, like hyper-religious, like we gotta separate ourselves from everybody else. That's not what James is after here. James is after our internal wrestling with our values and our morals. So when he says, is friendship with the world is enmity with God, he's not saying you can't be, like we should exclude ourselves from everyone else. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we should exclude ourselves from people. How often does Jesus say go out? Who was Jesus hanging out with, right? Tax collectors, prostitutes, people that the society had rejected. No, 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 James isn't saying we should reject people. He's saying we should reject ideals and morals and values that aren't of Scripture, that aren't of God, that aren't godly. And here's the thing. This makes sense, okay? If we really are fallen and busted up and broken, then this makes sense. Because if, if there is a God and that God created the universe, if that God created the universe and designed it to operate in a particular way, and if that God is good, and then his designs are good, it makes sense that the way that seems right to our brokenness, our innate brokenness, isn't necessarily always right. Yeah? See, armed with this, we have two options of living life. The way that seems right to man, the worldly way, or the way that is right to God, the godly way. There's no middle ground in any of this. It's kind of it's funny, like James just, it's, James makes it pretty simple. There's no middle ground. There's godly and there's worldly. Friendship with the world, friendship with values that are not of God is actually what? You're an enemy of God, that's what James says. And so there is, like for us, or for people that call themselves Christians, you can't really, um, there is no godly life with some world mixed in, Right? I, how many of you guys heard of Thomas Jefferson, like the Jefferson Bible? Yeah? A couple of you? So Thomas Jefferson, like, um, he called himself a Christian, but there was a lot in the Bible he didn't like. And so he literally would cut his part of his, parts of his Bible out that he didn't like. Or that he couldn't reconcile with his own worldview. And so he had this Bible that was like totally like jacked, like jacked up, cuts everywhere, like pieces ripped out. And they call it the Jefferson Bible now because there's a lot in the Bible that he didn't agree with and he didn't like. I think some of us do that with our faith. It's like we cut out the pieces of the Bible that, you know, don't really fit with my worldview or they don't really fit with who I am or they don't really fit with what I think should be, what I feel should be right. And on the other hand, we have people, we have a lot of people, maybe some, it's like we want to live the life we want to live with a little Jesus mixed in. Right, like I'll go to church, I'll come hang out with some Christians, I'll get my ticket on the, the Heaven Express or whatever and, you know, I'll mix some Jesus into my life. I'll sprinkle some Jesus on top, Right? James is saying there's, there is no real middle ground here. 
There's no real middle ground at all. What does he say? He says, submit to God. He says, submit to God. Submission to God is all or nothing. Submission to God is saying, I know I'm fallen. I know I'm broken. I know what I feel isn't, isn't always right. I know I can't do anything good outside of that God's help, but I also know that God is good, God is wise, and God is the creator of the universe. Submission to God is replacing our impassioned desires with the new creation that God makes us. It's his desires, not our own. And so it's not our desires that are at war with each other. It's God's desires we chase after. James says that there's peace and that there's war and that you either submit to God or that you are an enemy of God. And James says that the double-minded man, the person trying to retain the passions of their nature while trying to claim God as their own are actually enemies of God. And Jesus himself said, right, you cannot serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you love the one and hate the other. Uh, and I think that this reality ex is exposed everywhere in our culture, like everywhere. This reality is exposed everywhere in our culture, and I don't think there's anywhere that's more obvious than our cultural sexual ethic. It is impossible to reconcile a biblical sexual ethic with our current cultural sexual ethic. God's designs for sex were very, very different. God's designs for sex in the Bible were very, very different than our culture's designs or um, it says what sex should look like or should be. It's either one or the other. Now consider the amount of conflict. Go back to the idea of conflict. How much conflict exists because everyone has so many different ideas about what sex should be, about what sexuality should look like, about what gender and all, what it should look like. How much conflict exists from abuse to one night stands to broken hearts to accidental pregnancies to STDs to abort. Like all of it is conflict built upon not obeying the values of God but built on other values entirely. See, submission to God looks different than bowing and submitting to the waves of the various culture wars that happen in our society. And so the title tonight, I thought it was cute for our, our little talk here, is Unfriended. I thought it was cute. And so in that sense, we need to unfriend the world. If friendship with the world is enmity with God, then we need to unfriend the world. In terms of our values and our devotion and our worship, our identity should be built on God, not ourselves and not the world. We get our sexual ethic from the God of the universe, not, not the, the whims of our hormones or the waves of our culture. Because we're busted and our culture's busted. And so therefore, the epicenter of all the conflict happening sexually is actually a lack of submission to God, right? And so any conflict that you and I experience, all human conflict at its root is actually a vertical conflict with God. We have this idea of like vertical and horizontal. Some of you have heard us talk about that before. Like vertical is our relationship to God. Like what does my relationship with the God of the universe look like? And there, out of that, I then, the rest of my life is lived. And so I live a horizontal relationship with all you people, right? And so we have this vertical relationship with God and this horizontal relationship with other people. And it's our vertical relationship with the Lord that dictates what our horizontal relationship with other people looks like. And so if there's conflict vertically, there will inevitably be conflict horizontally. 
and in the technical sense, like we talk, you talk about Adam and Eve, you talk about original sin, we talked about depravity, right? That started there in the garden. We live in a Genesis 3 world, a broken world. But in a personal sense, conflict and fighting begins at our bowing before the worldly passions and desires of our own flesh and the culture around us over and above our worship and devotion and submission to God. Look at, uh, look at the text real quick. I don't know if it's gonna be on the screen, but um, look at verse four real quick again for me. Garrett could just throw it up there. Yeah, sweet, four through 10, awesome. You're the best, Garrett. All right, four through 10. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's really strong language. Now look at the first phrase there. You adulterous people. The Bible often uses the language of like husband to wife to talk about God's relationship with his people. And so for James to like, I mean, he's talking to a bunch of Christians here, right? These are letters to Christian churches. And so as he throws this out at them, you adulterous people, that's freaking heavy. That's got some weight to it. I mean, after all, these were first century Christians, right? Like they were dealing with like persecution and death and like all the disciples were killed, right? So they're dealing with some really heavy stuff. And then James comes in there and says, you adulterous people. And they're like, what are we dying for? You know, how hard would that be, right? But that just goes to show how seriously God takes the devotion of his people and the submission of his people. It just goes to take, show how serious God takes submission to him. This makes sense when we think about our obedience to God, um, to God's laws and his commandments and the, the way that he designed scripture. It makes sense to think about it as a covenant made between God and us. Marriage is a covenant, right? It's a covenant between one person and another and, and faithfulness or a lack of faithfulness inside of that covenant. So like infidelity or adultery, that is, you break that covenant. It's unfaithfulness to that covenant. And so in our faith, if our faith is a covenant, a promised relationship between us and God, then us rejecting God and choosing something else, someone else, or even ourselves, is unfaithfulness to that covenant. And we don't, I don't think we think about it that way. We look at, I think so many of us look at our faith like Thomas Jefferson did. And we pick the things we like and we get rid of the things we don't. And we rationalize away the things that we do that you know, don't totally line up with the, the God of the Bible. And so we don't, like in marriage, we don't, or in dating, right? You're not dating like three or four people at once, right? <laughs> like you got like two or three qualities over here you like, here's a couple, you know, like, you know, it'd be really weird. Actually, I think that actually happens sometimes, but it's still really weird. <laughs> so in our faith, why do we flirt with the values of the world and the values of our broken natures while calling ourselves Christians? Why do we justify our counter-biblical behavior or our God-less desires, excusing it and stitching it together to make this Frankenstein's monster of our own little faith of our own making? makes sense now that the word jealousy, right? Look at, the, look at our text again. Verse, verse, uh, start in verse five. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, this is talking about God, he, that's God, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Makes sense that God's jealous, right? If we're in this covenant relationship. I mean, it makes sense that a, that a, a spurned spouse a rejected spouse would feel jealousy over her husband's affection, over his wife's affection. 
it makes sense that God wants our affection and our devotion as a Christian. James is saying that we should be utterly and entirely devoted and submitted to our relationship with the Lord Jesus. We should submit our entire selves to him. The things we don't like, the things that rub up against us in the Bible that we really don't like, the things that rub up against us in Christian doctrine that we don't like, we need to submit ourselves entirely to the lordship of Jesus. And I think oftentimes that isn't true, right? As we said, sometimes we can find ourselves in that like space that maybe sometimes we didn't even expect to. You know what I mean? Like you wake up and you look over on your shelf and your Bible's got like an inch of dust on it because you haven't opened it up in like a month or a year. And you find yourself in this space of complacency or frustration or sadness and you just, you, sometimes you just don't know how you got there. Or sometimes maybe we fool ourselves into thinking, you know, uh, we're still good with God because we do the christian things, we do the church thing, we hang out with some Christian friends, we do a Bible study or two, and, uh, but our hearts aren't really in it. See, the descent into neglecting the gospel and the God of the universe, it can be slow, it can be deceiving to the point where we don't even realize we're in the midst of it. And that's because we haven't unfriended the world yet. It's because we're still Snapchat friends with that old beast. It's because we still favorite some of those tweets from the old self that go back to who we were and neglect who God's called us to be. And so James is saying, in the pithy way that I want to say it, hit unfriend. (laughs) Unfollow. Unfollow the who you used to be. Unfollow the world. Unfollow the values that run counter to the designs of the God of the universe. And here's the really cool part, though, and this is where we're going to close with our last two points real quick. God is not like a spurned spouse. Oftentimes you see see adultery and you see see, uh, unfaithfulness almost all every time ends in divorce. But praise the God of the universe that in our unfaithfulness, in obeying him, he doesn't divorce us. That's our third point tonight, God's grace toward us. Look at verses four, or look at chapter four, verses six through 10 again. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God gives grace. (laughs) What a beautiful thing that even though we are these unfaithful, adulterous people rejecting the God of the universe and his designs, God still has grace. Verse six, just the very beginning of verse six, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace and more grace and more grace. That's God just saying, I got you. That's God saying, I got you. That in our brokenness, we, like there's, there's a reality here where many of us, as we chase after the things not of God, James says, be more than that. Be wretched. Turn your joy into turn your joy into gloom. Your laughter into mourning. Humble yourselves. Man, it's reasonable that as as we start to parse out our lives and how we aren't obeying God and how we aren't submitting ourselves to the God of the universe, that that, that's frustrating. 
It's reasonable that it brings sadness and gloom. It's reasonable that it's hard, man. We like, we like easy things, right? Like, we like things being simple and easy and practical. Like, that's, that's who we are in the digital age today. Simplicity, easy. The reality of us following the God of the universe, obeying Jesus, submitting ourselves to his designs, man, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And so if you find yourself, like I often do, in a place where you're not really submitting to God, you don't really want to submit to God. If you find yourself in that place, be humble. Humble yourself. Say, man, I'm broken. I'm weak. I need you because God gives more grace. Man, it's beautiful. It just heaps the grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. And so just as all of our human conflict, okay, begins with conflict with God, in the same way that God keeps giving grace here, we can start giving grace here. Look with me at the last part of our text, James 4. That's our last point. It's grace towards others. God gives us grace so we can give grace. James 4, 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, One who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, once we relent in our war with God, our fight for who should rule our lives, once we submit to the creator of the universe and not our own bent, broken desires and passions, we can get grace from God and then shadow that grace out to other people. See, how many conflicts and fights do you think you'd have in your life if you truly submitted to the designs of God? There'd probably still be some, for, to be sure. We'd still live in a busted up world. But if you really want a more permanent solution to a broken relationship with your parents or with a friend, you want a permanent solution to the brokenness in your relationships with other image bearers, first examine the relationship to the God who cast that image and created that image. If our conflicts with people are really a reflection of our personal conflict with the Lord, I'm saying this again because it's so beautiful, then it makes sense that experience the grace of God, we can then give the grace of God away to other people. And so if you find yourself embroiled in conflict often, uh, whether externally or internally, uh, if you struggle having grace and showing kindness towards people, like getting frustrated and angry all the time, if you want to be more peaceable and kind and generous and gentle, then start by examining whether or not you have actually submitted your life to the God of the universe that designed you. Let's pray real quick. Lord God, thank you so much again, man, to to open the Bible, a the revealed word of of your revealed word, God. The fact that you gave us something that you communicated to us, that you condescended from eternity and perfection and the infinite to communicate with us in our language is a beautiful thing. Lord, I pray that as we as as maybe we assess our lives in here, as we assess what is worldly, what is, what is broken, what is self-made, what is 
bowing to culture. Lord, that we'd look to the beautiful reality, man, that you changed the universe through the gospel of Jesus, and that, Lord, you created the universe, and, Lord, that we, you were designed us. That missing piece is our submission to you. That our jealousy for, for our jealousy and our insecurities are actually found complete and fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus because you designed us into submission, Lord. So help us, help us understand you more deeply as we assess our submission and our lack of it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.